Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Tory Slees, COVID scaremongering, Harry and Meghan and the historian cancelled for impersonating Hitler. So the Westminster Sleaze scandal is rumbling on. We've had Owen Paterson falling on his sword after being accused of an egregious breach of the parliamentary lobbying rules. There's been accusations that the Conservatives are giving out peerages to their big donors, the alleged so-called Three Million Club. Uh, And most recently, there's been talk about Geoffrey Cox, uh, the highest paid MP in Britain, who's been criticised for some of his work with the British Virgin Islands as a barrister. I mean, Tom, what have you made of all of this so far? Well, it's not the most important point to make, but I am struck by just the incompetence of the government in basically creating this scandal from thin air. I mean, obviously, this investigation into Owen Paterson had been rumbling on for some time, but in terms of the way it all panned out, you know, trying to protect him and overhaul the standards process in such an incredibly cack-handed way that it basically just created this whole scandal for them. Mm. You know, I mean, it seemed to be cooked up by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House, and the chief whip, Mark Spencer. And they didn't seem to even think that this would be a problem for a lot of Tory MPs, even though a lot of them didn't end up voting um, for this amendment, which would have basically given Patterson a stay of execution and allowed for this new committee to be set up to overhaul the standards. They didn't really think that, of course, Labour and the Lib Dems wouldn't actually be on board with this new committee, making it a complete kangaroo court and absolutely ridiculous. And so you have the government just blundering into a new scandal. Mm. And the thing about these things when you're talking about questions of, I mean, it's talked broadly about corruption, but everything gets chucked in the bucket, you know, second jobs, actual instances of rule breaking as Owen Patson was seen to fall foul of, and Jeffrey Cox is in part accused of, at least in one aspect, but also just people making money outside yeah. of Parliament. All of it gets, you know, journalists have basically just been going down the list of MPs registered interests yeah. <laughs> and reporting it. You know, that's all <laughs> you have to do in order to feed the beast in this situation. So it's definitely not the most important point. We'll get onto the more important points, I'm sure. But just the ability of this government to just blunder from one scandal to another, like the kind of shopping trolley as Boris Johnson is famously yeah. known to describe himself as, it, it never ceases to amaze me, definitely. I mean, it feels like every week we're talking about some big, all-encompassing Tory scandal. This one just seems to have a bit more legs than the previous three or four that we've been talking about. Yeah, and I mean, it's just um, the government is in turmoil, isn't it really? I mean, it feels as if there, there is a new scandal every week, even, you know, bigger things than this. But we go from one crisis to the next, you know, energy crisis to sleaze crisis to whatever it might be next week. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not always a big fan of um, Marina Hyde's uh, articles in The Guardian, but one thing she did point out, which was quite funny, is that Boris Johnson was interviewed somewhere in a hospital and to get off the questions of sleaze, he pushed the questions onto coronavirus. And given how screwed up the government has been around coronavirus, it, she was saying it tells you something that they're trying to divert towards a thing that they haven't wanted to talk about for a long time just to get away from the sleaze crisis. You know, it's a bit like the expenses scandal or when tax dodging or all those things come up. You, it's tempted, you're tempted to say, well, you know, kind of, <laughs> who knew it? You know, yeah, MPs yeah. are involved in like backhanded stuff and a bit of cash here or even, you know, more obvious um, kind of in your face elements of corruption or just sort of stupidity, you know, like going to the Virgin Islands and making loads of money and voting from there or doing things that are that most of us would seem unsavory and not what an MP should be getting up to. You're tempted to say, oh, well, you know, whatever, who knew it? But I think the important point here is that the government, the Tory government has since 2019 attempted to at least make a name for itself as this kind of populisty but also like grassroots level mm. up kind of party who you know the new party of the poor the the party who really cares about the average joe and i think it's probably not a superficial point to to even though it does feel a bit like a lame lefty point to say well it's quite clear that people who are crowing about the difficulty of living on an mp's salary or the fact that they just had to do this second job and have these second interests and second income to survive living in london you think oh please you know there's an element of not just out of touchness here, but a sign that a lot of this crawl thumping around leveling up isn't really based in reality. If you have individuals who uh, carry on like this, However, I mean, the Labour Party does it as well. So it's not that it's just a conservative yeah, thing. And yeah. obviously Keir Starmer got caught out I think this he made week. like 25 grand this parliament or something like that for his outside <laughs> legal work. Was in to talk to Miss Condorea to have yeah. some sort of advisory role. There's, it's, it's no mistake that um, Angela Rayner has been leading the charge in parliament <laughs> and elsewhere <laughs> about all of these kinds of things. But that's the nature of these sorts of scandals is mm. that they, they reflect, they end up reflecting badly on all sides of the house. Yeah. They're breeding a certain cynicism. The problem is, is that you do have instances of questionable behaviour and explicit rule breaking but the problem is that gets kind of folded into a kind of broader shield cry about corruption which can often be a, a bit discombobulating in terms of working out what has and hasn't been done what is and isn't allowed but can also just feed cynicism in the absence of actually trying to do anything mm. about it and i think the, the other thing that's always worth saying is that these kind of corruption scandals the upshot of them always is to empower some kind of new committee, yeah. some kind of new external process. We need to bring high court judges in or we need to bring um, various different experts in. And I think the answer to all of these, especially in situations where things are a bit borderline, mm. you know, where things are a question of should they be doing that rather than are they allowed to be doing yeah. that, then it's about the accountability to voters, making them accountable effectively to again, either the lay members or the sitting MPs of the Standards Committee or to votes in the House is obviously ridiculous when MPs are there because their constituents put them there. Yeah. Um, and the, what's very clear is that the kind of apparatus for keeping MPs on the straight and narrow has completely failed. I mean, it's the standards procedure as it is now was effectively constructed, you know, in the wake of the, the former kind of Tory cash for questions scandal. Um, and not, again, there were kind of reforms that were made in the wake of the expenses scandal as well, none of which has helped. And I think the reason for that is they always miss the kind of democratic component to it. Yeah. So in 2010, all of the major parties went in with some sort of pledge around recall. So allowing constituents to be able to force a by-election if they get the requisite amount of 
petitioners and all the rest of it. But the fudge they ended up with, because again, there was this terror about actually subjecting MPs, some of them <laughs> which might be sitting ministers or pr- the prime minister either, even to this kind of process, mm. means what you ended up with was a situation where, yes, there could be a recall petition, but it would only be if they were convicted of fiddling their expenses or given a custodial sentence, or if the standards committee had recommended, I think, more than 10 days suspension, and then that goes through off of a vote in Parliament. So it's still very much controlled. Yeah. Whereas I think, especially given how messy a lot of this stuff is, the the question should be that the public should be empowered to hold their MPs to account more than they are now. Let them weed through the rights and wrongs of all of this stuff rather than just making it kind of, again, just unending trial by media and then some kind of, you know, souped up standards procedure at the end of it. That I think, I wonder why we're having so little of that discussion at the moment. Yeah, I I agree. And I think even, you know, some of the borderline cases where you're thinking, you know, is it just... Is it is it illegal? Is it against the rules? But it just feels a bit wrong. Those things, MPs probably just wouldn't even go there if they felt the voters breathing down their neck, if they knew that they were truly being accountable for you know what they get up to in 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 their time in their in their time that we pay for as well. Um, I mean, one other aspect to come out of this we should talk about is is the Lords, and you know, Mick Hume wrote a very good piece on Spiked, which, which made the point that actually, you know, the appointments to the Lords that are within the rules, that aren't, you know, blatantly corrupt, as in someone has literally paid for their peerage, are just as bad. It's just as corrupting to the democratic influence and democratic process. Yeah, it's the same way that people sort of get more upset about hereditary peers or things like that, rather than peers who were elected by the Conservative or Labour Party because they have done some kind of service to society or whatever excuse they use. Or service to the Tory party. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Labour Party. Every say. member of the House of Lords is there legitimately if mm. you believe in democracy as we do. And, uh, you know, at, at Spiked, we believe in abolishing the Lords because of that very fact that it acts as an undemocratic check on the process of what happens in the Commons, which is the process of politics that supposedly we are meant to decide on. Um, But a a point that a few people have been making throughout the week, which I think links in with this question of democracy, and actually, as you mentioned, Fraser, the idea that MPs and certainly Lords don't feel the pressure of voters, don't feel that that kind of democratic need breathing down their neck, um, is that the biggest example of corruption in the last six years has been the attempt to overthrow Brexit. And I know that some people watching this podcast will think, oh my God, they're talking about Brexit (laughs) again. But the reason why that's important is because, you know, when it comes to cut through with voters, I think one mistake that the Labour Party is making at the moment now and indeed the Lib Dems is they're kind of like, oh, we've got them, you know, we've got them in their dirty money. Uh, In actual fact, the thing that people, it's not that people don't care about MPs acting badly or, you know, we shouldn't be cynical about that and we should change the rules and make it all proper and whatever. But it's that, you know, what the thing that really matters to us is when, not when MPs get a bit of cash for doing a speech somewhere at some bank, Mm. but whether or not they enact the things that we vote for. And and from, you know, left to right, all across the political spectrum, there was an attempt to undermine democracy. So you end up, you you know, when when it comes to talking about corruption, political corruption, I think that's far more important and and is also ongoing because we have rejoin attempts and all sorts of discussions about that, how terrible Brexit is even a million years after it happens now. I mean, just on the on the Brexit thing as well, because I think whether you're talking about the House of Lords, um, any institution that is further away, further divorced from the people, it's going to become more and more corrupt. They've just yeah. got you know got more places to hide. They wield power without accountability. All of that thing, 
all of that is so clear. And even if you're talking about MPs themselves, I mean, it's interesting, at least from the Tory party, from what I can tell, a lot of this kind of extra jobs stuff is a, seems to be the preserve of safe seat MPs because mm. they don't fear their own electorate. They've also got a lot more time. They're not having yeah. to go to every single constituency meeting, you know, get having to kiss babies and weigh lambs or whatever it is you do in these various <laughs> different places in order to maintain a kind of presence and a sense that you're there and representing people. So th- again, anything which just creates more distance or insulates people from the public, the more in which you have um, corruption flourish. It's not about these external pressures. And again, it's funny hearing so many of the kind of Remainers, um, you know, screaming about Tory corruption and us becoming some banana republic. You know, they should go to Brussels and see how the sausage is made. Because, yeah, again, yeah. you know, there when you have just this politics done behind closed doors, there's a lot of corruption which goes on there as well. So, yes, just bring politics closer back to the people make them keep MPs honest rather than all of these other kinds of suggestions that we're in in recent days. Hello. There's just this really small thing, which is that uh, there's all the discussion, but one of the things that's most disheartening is the response from some in the media commentary upset who are like, the solution to this is that we just pay MPs more or we pay, you know, even pay the prime minister more. And it really, it when you're talking about democracy and the, um, what MPs are supposed to be doing, politicians, it shows how, how deep set among the um, metropolitan elite or whatever you want to call them is this idea that politics has to be, as you say, Tom, removed from people. They have to be experts that are paid to do like, extortionate amounts to do politics, to like remove themselves away from normal life to an even greater extent yeah. rather than, you know, there is something to be said, not about having a job given us, you know, giving advice to some consultancy firm, but pe- for politicians living in the real world, one of the biggest problems we have is that so many of the politicians, to not, you know, without sounding cynical, are career politicians. They go from, you know, student position to some kind of consultancy, bang into a constituency and they have no no touch with the real world and therefore then paying them what £300,000 some are suggesting to remain out of touch with the real world doesn't seem like a solution and tells you something about the way we value democracy. I I do wonder though, because on the pay stuff, I think people would be a lot less, um, we're a lot more inclined to kind of talk about that as an issue because the reason that MPs never want to put it up is because they know it looks terrible yeah the reason it looks terrible is because people don't trust them yeah you know the reason it's such a kind of horrendous situation and why they just really don't want to go anywhere near it or even open this discussion let alone anything else is because of that because again the the more that politics has drifted away from people over recent decades the more people are just going to assume that they've got their nose in the trough and they're not doing what they should be doing that they are you know in the pocket of um, xyz so again i feel like all of these discussions you would it would just be completely different if there wasn't that kind of baked in, I don't want to say cynicism, but certainly a level of scepticism, which is bred of how distant the two parts are. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. The head of NHS England made a remarkable statement this week. She said that Beds, hospital beds have 14 times as many COVID patients as they did last year. Now, this was totally false. It would have been completely impossible for this to be to mm. have been the case. 
probably would have meant around 150,000 COVID patients in hospital, more than there's ever been at any one time. There's currently, what, like 7,000? Something like that, <laughs> Yes, yeah. it's really, you know... <laughs> Quite it's, off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's off by a, by a country mile, but obviously, you know, it was the claim was repeated in the media and the media have been doing some of their own kind of spinning of statistics. Every time you turn on Sky News, it feels like they're telling you that cases are spiking or rising or at record levels. I mean, it's just, there, there is now a point where the mainstream media has sort of become fake news on COVID in a way that is you know, really quite shocking. I mean, what have we made of this? Well, I think it's just the inability to report the good news on COVID in recent weeks has just become so ridiculous. As you say, you've had a few instances of just pushing complete nonsense statistics. I don't know where Amanda Pritchard got those figures from. I think she's claiming it was comparing August to August or something like that, but we're yeah. in November, so I don't know how that... <laughs> and also, when people were actually bothered to take 30 seconds to fact check it, they went to look at government NHS numbers. Yeah. You know, it's not like these weren't at her fingertips. It's all very, very strange. But what's also interesting is, again, is the inability of the media to just be like, hang on, <laughs> that's definitely not true. It's I think on the one hand, it's because a lot of political journalists are just uninterested in COVID um, any more partly. They just think of it as a kind of stick with which to beat the go beat the government. They don't yeah, really, yeah. you know, it's not it's not something they're necessarily tracking in the same way anymore. But I think there was some the FT um, who have been keeping track of all of this, of course, um, and have been s somewhat prophets of doom in some respects in terms of how they presented data and pointed out that today, recording this on the Thursday, it's been in England something like 18 consecutive days of week-on-week yeah. week declines in cases. Like You just would have no idea if you turned on the media. And mm. in the past week, and loads of people have been pointing this out, it's everyone, it's Sky News, it's the BBC, CNN, all have said something along the lines of, well, of course, cases are going up. It's just received wisdom. Yeah. But it's just completely detached from reality. I can't work out what the reason is for this other than the fact that they've just stopped paying attention to the extent that they were ever paying that much close attention mm. to begin with. Um, but it just seems like where COVID is concerned, they're addicted to bad news and they don't know what to do with good news. I just can't make head nor tail of it. Really. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's almost a sense of disappointment <laughs> among <laughs> some in the media that A, things are going better than expected, but also that we're not moving to this plan B um, you know, with vaccine passports and masks, there seems to, there, there has always been a policy preference among journalists for more stringent measures. Yeah, well, you don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist who kind of believes in the idea that the media has this sort of cynical ploy. But there is something in the fact that, as Tom says, at these press conferences and indeed in the kind of drive to report negatively or, you know, do kind of scaremongering reporting around coronavirus, there is ample opportunity for gotchas. Mm. And we're living in an increased age of gotcha journalism, which is, you know, oh, you said that you would do this by this date and you didn't, ha-ha, or you, you know, you said that hospital rates would be this and they're this percentage. And, and, and you know, it's cheap and also it doesn't resonate with viewers, because I think most of us stopped watching the press conferences at least a long time ago, because one, because they're depressing and also because uh, in a positive way, things are, people can instinctively feel that things are starting to change for the better. Mm. Places are opening up and um, people are feeling more confident. You know, it, dare I say it, people are even excited for Christmas. Whereas if you look back to last year, it was like, horrendous. And so people are enjoying that kind of normality resuming. 
And I think that there's a fear among some uh, journalists and particularly reporters um, who are, you know, the kind of Westminster set who like to be able to give a little bit of juicy gossip on what someone's done wrong, which you know has its place in news journalism, but is feeding off this idea that is that the media has had a very privileged position in the last uh, 18, 19 months of the pandemic in that because we have been kept out of politics and kept out of life they have been our they have been our only means to have access to um politicians and there's a very they've enjoyed an, a privileged position of power that perhaps they didn't have previously and i think that's going to be very hard to let go of i mean it's also the case that they pick and choose what they want to report on we've had some very serious things happen in the last week um you know uh vaccine passports brought in for care home residents which uh, you know i had a different view on back when i you know the vaccine was seen as this kind of ultimate panacea and when the cases were really high but now you change your you might change your mind slightly after looking at transmissibility and it's you know, effectiveness around that, or also the fact that all the unions are coming out and saying this is a terrible idea. I mean, in Wales, they're bringing COVID passports, not just for frontline important staff, but, you know, in all types of cases. And no one really cares apart from us and some of our support, you know, and you just think, but this is huge. Why isn't, why aren't you going crazy about this? And it's because the balance has always been, and it continues to be, um, you know, frightening, frightening coronavirus up here, civil liberties down there. And it, you know, it has never managed to mm. balance out in any way, shape or form. And that's still a problem. Tom, I think it's just interesting that there is just seems to be a kind of atmosphere which has been created around all of this stuff. Which, as I say, is just kind of, you can't ever report the good stuff about mm. this. And I'm just trying to get to grips with like what that really is about. And I think your point's about, you know, they gain so much more moral authority through this. But at the same time, journalists had a really bad pandemic. Like, yeah. There's no two ways about it. I mean, just look at Robert Peston's antics over the course of this, you know, <laughs> trying to lecture Jonathan Van Tam about the difference between antigen and antibody testing, yeah. completely ballsing it up, you know, looking at... um Again, some of the uh, statistics around, I think, cases amongst the vaccinated getting it completely wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> writing blogs about this stuff. So there's there's not much humility on the basis of all of this, which I really find quite strange, given the fact that, you know, there's there's huge problems with the way in which the media has covered COVID. They definitely have crossed the line time and again from just reporting the situation and basically advocating certain kinds of policies and the most stringent lockdown policies Mm. imaginable. All of this stuff in terms of cases and their seeming inability to even recognise that things are actually going in a good direction is no doubt because of the fact that they've basically been campaigning for these plan B measures, you know, uh, reintroduction of mandatory masks, vaccine passports, all the working from home again, all these kinds of things since that plan B was drawn up. Um, and again, so that part of it has been really horrendous because they have just crossed the line again from, you know, to holding the government to account for, to advocating a particular kind of policy. But there's also the sort of thing where just in terms of the nuts and bolts of this, these people who kind of pose as these little geniuses mm. who are across absolutely everything and are really there to tell you what's what, they've just had no idea what they're talking about. And they're certainly, you know, their view of the statistics and the situation that we're in is incredibly warped by their own biases. That much is obvious. I think a lot of this is unthinking yeah, and a product of ineptitude, (laughs) (laughs) you know, rather than it is some sort of sinister conspiracy, but it's definitely a damning indictment of them. There's no two ways about that. The Spiked Shop is open for business. You can get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, mug or more. So why not treat yourself or treat a friend who has good taste to some epic spiked merchandise? Get ban nothing, question everything on a sweatshirt. 
get cancel cancel culture on a laptop sleeve or get love Europe, hate the EU on a tote bag. Support Spiked and look great at the same time by visiting the Spiked shop. You can go to spikes-online.com and click the red shop button in the top right corner or you can get there directly by going to spikes-online.com forward slash shop. Well, let's stick with um, the media for a little bit. The things on our front page at the moment, um, Harry and Meghan are back all over the newspapers, particularly Meghan. She's apologised for um, potentially misleading the court. Um, Harry has come out and claimed that the word Megxit is sexist. Um, Tom, are any of those stories take your fancy? Well, I don't think you've been, enjoying, just- <laughs> you've, been re- you've been reading Finding Freedom. And- I mean, the case between the Markles and um, the uh, Mail on Sunday's publishers is going through the Court of Appeal at the moment. So there's things that are, are drifting out of that, but we'll know a bit more probably, every, you know, people watching this podcast will know more about this by the time we get to it. So we should probably part that. Um, but the Megxit thing I thought was quite funny. <laughs> I mean, so he was he was on this Wired panel about online disinformation, mm-hmm. something like this. And he goes into world this- expert on- World expert. <laughs> well, he's actually got one of his jobs, one of his many jobs, is that he's on this commission of the Aspen Institute looking into online misinformation and disinformation. <laughs> what qualifies him for that? I have no idea. But um, so along other pearls of wisdom, apparently he said that he warned Jack Dorsey at Twitter that the like the- the storming of the capital was going to happen before. So I, like, I tried to warn you that something like this would happen, which is um, both um, sinister and funny at the same time in terms of his new outsized role in the elites. Um, but the the Megxit comment is fascinating. So his point was that it is and was a misogynistic slur. I think the the reason for this is because as a lot of people pointed out at the time of Megxit was that this hashtag mm. had been circulating in the kind of murkier corners of the, the internet amongst people who just really didn't like Megan, some of them with, for bigoted reasons, no doubt. Um, so there's a little bit of truth to what he's saying, but we all know what he's trying to do with this, which yeah. is to conflate criticism of him and his wife with misogyny in this case, because I guess he's, you know, gone horse talking about racism for five minutes. That seems to be exactly what it is. Megxit, it's, Megan and exit yeah. like Brexit put together. We all understand that. It's just a, even if they didn't actually come up with it, when we all saw it, it was like, oh, that's just a cheeky kind of tabloid coinage. But I think this is a slightly more silly example of just how, and Harry and Megan are par excellence for this, identity politics is just a perfect way to deflect criticism and demonise your opponents, even if you're the most privileged people mm. imaginable. They've done that time and time again. I mean... The thing about Harry and Meghan always strikes me is they were going to war with the press before the press were going to war with Emery. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? It was either a letter or a statement that he put out. This way back in 2016, this is while everyone was just quite happy for them and mm. they were quite cute and whatever. Um, talk, um, you know, admonishing journalists for the colonial undertones of their reporting and all this kinds of stuff. And he's just really incredibly preoccupied with it. But what I find striking time and again, although I think the shine is starting to come off them a little bit, is that people just defer to yeah. these often quite ridiculous mm. claims. They just think, fair enough, yes, of course there was something nasty about all of the coverage of you two, even in the absence of any explicit bigotry in the actual coverage. So, yeah, it's just a, the silliest example yet of that shtick that he and Megan have, I think. Ella? Well, I think that's the kind of key point, is that despite the fact that this pair have relinquished their royal titles in some way, you know, they still use the, the Duchess and, and whatever 
kind of vocabulary, but they're not allowed to wear the medals. They're not allowed to have the privilege and all of that, but they do still have the privilege of deference. Mm. Uh, you know, and not that I think it's, you know, not, I'm not standing up for tabloids ripping women and being nasty about them, but you only have to pick up a copy of Closer or Heat magazine to see what they're saying about Katie Price. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, the way in which Megan is treated tends to be in a very simple, like kind of, I would say, obsequious kind of way. And there's this, this individual who, aside from her acting career, really hasn't done very much for society, still enjoys the um, lionization of the royals still the two of them are still they can do no wrong in many people's eyes in a way which makes you know anti-monarchists like us sick but uh, you know, aside from that the weaponization and commercialization of offense that these two are are able to do is more sick making i mean the fact we had brexit we also had legsit i mean everyone's done as yeah. you know they put zit well, on everything well. yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like come on those this wounds. individual who um is we're meant to feel so sorry for for be, being so put upon. In fact, I think it was in that interview with Wired, mm. Harry came out and said, you know, a seventy percent of all of the hatred that my wife gets comes down to fifty accounts on Twitter. It was like, so what's the problem then? Just <laughs> block them. I mean, F, doesn't every celebrity have a cohort of mad and unpleasant and bigoted and you know sometimes dangerous followers who get obsessed with them? I mean, pretty much every public figure can list you at least fifty accounts of people who they would really rather would like, fall off the edge of the planet. But I mean, this—it's like they want celebrity, they want to sell the lattes, and they want to do the Netflix deals, and they want to do all of that, but they don't want the dirtiness that comes with it. And that's not to suggest that, like, it's not like. We'll just put up with it. Society is bad and celebrity culture is bad and shut up. But I kind of am saying that because you can't, unless you give anything to society, and, I, and I'm now sounding really moralistic, but I mean, screw it. If, unless you do something, if your whole basis is being an, a royal, and not just that, but a royal who, like, not so long ago spent most of his time being incredibly unwoke in different various uniforms and costumes. And uh, I have very limited sympathy for you. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to continuously capped off when they're not royals anymore. Well, his most famous unwoke moment was obviously uh, dressing up as a Nazi, which brings us beautifully into the next (laughs) section, (laughs) which is about the Cambridge Union has blacklisted the uh, TV historian, uh, Andrew Graham Dixon, because he essentially impersonated Hitler uh, during a speech, during a debate at the Union. Now, they've since rode back a bit and they've um, they've said they're not going to draw up a, a blacklist um, anymore of speakers. But, I mean, it's quite a telling episode, isn't it, Tom? I mean, no, it was. And you wrote about this. So it was a debate about bad taste. Or- yeah. It was, about, yeah, it was yeah. a debate about, is it possible to have good taste? Mm. And Graham Dixon was essentially arguing that... The Nazis, because they were racist, that meant their bad morals gave them bad taste. Their vile racism led them to overlook great works of art. Um, essentially, yeah, enti- the, basically the entire sort of modern art canon they just dismissed as Jewish or, you know, degenerate, degenerate or yeah, pertaining yeah. to people of colour, that kind of thing. And, and so they could brush it aside. And obviously, you know, most Nazi art being propaganda is just crap. No, because I think that's it, what was really interesting about that was you just see the, the complete detachment of context from any of these discussions now whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, in, in some respects, you think it's probably a bit performative. They're trying to make a statement about themselves. I mean, who did anyone genuinely complain? Was anyone genuinely upset? I mean, I haven't seen any, you know, clear reporting to that effect, but it's just the trigger word or the mm. trigger 
impersonation yeah. in this case or whatever it is is just enough even if you're making a kind of satirical anti-racist point by invoking um one you know the greatest villain of history yeah that counts for absolutely nothing it's really really interesting it's just one of those things where you try and work out again is that is this a sort of genuine sincere response or is this just because they see it as their kind of duty to do this and it's noble to do this and whatever but it's interesting as well because it's the cambridge union as opposed to like the students union or some sort of student group or whatever and you know they pride themselves historically on being this kind of home of free speech was yeah. it was it cambridge who hosted nick griffin back in the day and got into a big controversy over that i know that cambridge certainly hosted marine le pen mm. um in the last few years over yeah that. yeah and so they would really kind of stick their necks out for, mm. for free speech and no doubt would welcome some of the controversy and the, and the coverage as a result of that um but even in these institutions it, it certainly um is creeping in i thought john cleese's response was brilliant you know to say that he was now calling off a future appearance at the cambridge union because as someone who has impersonated hitler on a number of occasions <laughs> he would kind of wants to cancel himself before anyone else gets there um so again you're starting to see a bit of a kind of heartening pushback to this kind of behavior but what i don't it's just it's a it's offense culture detached from actually being offended yeah anyway. you know what yeah. i mean it's kind of preemptive and that's the thing about it that i really don't get and it's yeah it's it's so obvious that it's it's the Ignorance of context, ignorance of intent. Um, you can be, you can't be anti-racist unless you are anti-racist in the way that we say you should be. There's a kind of, you know, prescriptive nature of that. If you if you try and challenge someone, make them feel uncomfortable, even in the service of the good, mm-hmm. that is forbidden. Well, Graham Dixon's whole argument was that he was, and you know, when you watch it, you think, would I have gone that far? Would I have said all these things? It's a bit like when someone wants to talk about the N-word and they repeatedly use the N-word yeah. as a means of showing what they're talking about context. And you think, all right, lay off. Like, it was a know, very it, long it, it impression. Was, it was a very long impression. <laughs> and you think, all right, you could have done it in a shorter time. But the whole point, you know, maybe he was doing that to labour his point. Mm. And I think the really important fact is that, number one, you know, the chair of the discussion, you know, apparently was drunk, said he wasn't drunk. The whole thing about the Cambridge Union debate, I've done one of them, is it's this like incredibly posh, Larry kind of event and people go too far. And that's kind of, it's like the ha-ha-ha Oxbridge scene. That's what they do. They all drink loads of like port and then go and have a debate so in the context of that that that's important but also more importantly he came out afterwards and said sorry for causing offense and he made it clear he said this is what I was trying to do and I'm Mm. sorry and we talked about this before on the podcast you know the, the whole thing about repentance is that if someone does offend because obviously it's possible to offend and it happens all the time and then they say well I'm really sorry I didn't mean it to come across like that in a civilized society you're meant to be able to say okay, if you're sincere, I believe you and no hard feelings, shake your hands. Yeah. But the important thing is that there's been so much fuss about this Cambridge Union event and it, this is, says something about the uh, approach to anti-Semitism in society today, which is that if you have this sort of relatively manufactured fuss, uh, as Tom says, you know, how many people actually complain the stuff about um, anti-Semitism and a Hitler impression. At the same time, you have, uh, you know, a play that gets put on in a London theatre about a fat cat, big capitalist, loads of money, terribly corrupt, you know, blood money, all that kind of stuff. Guy called Herschel Fink that goes on and, you know, several uh, newspapers review it, including The Guardian, not picking up on the fact that it might be, you know, somewhat anti-Semitic to use the most Jewish name anyone could think of to portray a, you know, loads of money capitalist. 
no one cares about that. And so if as a, you know, someone who's Jewish or you don't even have to be Jewish, who's concerned about anti-Semitism, looking at the way in which you have these manufactured panics about um, offence in one way and then silence when it comes mm. to a real instances of anti-Semitism or indeed what happened outside LSE mm. um, yeah. recently, it makes you think, am I really supposed to care about this and not the other thing? It, it makes you question people's motives, I think. And it just makes it silly, doesn't it? Like you're saying, the thing that happened outside the LSE, which seems to happen outside of LSE, KCL, whenever anyone who has served or is serving in some sort of Israeli institution, um, it's happened to previous ambassadors, it's happened to people who just used to be in the army, given the fact there's national service over there, that includes a lot of people. Um, again, this kind of really vitriolic response. So, And that wasn't really covered I certainly was, didn't make it onto the BBC News website or anything like that. So there's also a bit of a danger that you have these kind of safe, yeah. silly cases, which a few idiots get upset and then we all get our rocks off for about five minutes, taking a piss out of them, which I'm not against. We've had a great five minutes here. But at the same time, <laughs> these kind of more sinister things carry on. We all forget about that. We all forget about Kathleen Stock, all these things which are, um, again, feel much more serious, just aren't necessarily taken up but again i think it's it's in overreaching that they demonstrate the silliness of the ideology so in yeah. that sense the cambridge union have done this all a good service thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time